Well, it's great to be here again. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Doug, and I have the privilege of being here and if I have to share with you. We're jumping into our final day in our series on Psalms. And I'm excited to dive into Psalms today with you. Because if you know anything about the Psalms, you know that they are Hebrew song lyrics. And whether it's the first century or the 21st century, songs and music is a powerful thing. And I know it speaks to all of us in a way that almost nothing else can. Music is unique. Therefore, the Psalms are unique. And I want to take you today to Psalm 16, a.k.a. the Golden Psalm. Psalm 16 is called the Golden Psalm because it has a reputation throughout history for being incredibly valuable and being full of life-changing truth. And I'm eager to unveil this treasure chest before you and to show you what's in there and for you to not miss a thing. It hit me personally this week, and there are riches in in here that I guarantee, if you get them, will transform your life. I know that's a high bar to set, but that's why they call it the Golden Psalm. Now, there are many things today I know that whisper to be life-changing and powerful, but Psalm 16 has stood the test of the ages. Now, first things first, if you want to get Psalm 16, you have to understand who the author is. The author was King David of David and Goliath fame. Now, I like to imagine that when King David was writing this, maybe he was in his tent on one of his many military campaigns. There he is in his command tent with the wind flapping around the pavilion and rustling the maps next to him. Or maybe he wrote this psalm in the luxury of his palace where he was up high writing, and through the high window nearby, you could hear the noise of the city coming up that overlooked the realm which he solely and singularly ruled. Now, no matter where he was when he wrote this, I reckon it's a fairly safe bet to say he was surrounded by military men. Because you see, from an early age, he'd been around men of war, and he was a man of war. When he was a young bloke, you probably remember, he brought provisions to the front line. When he was older and as he grew up, God very clearly directed his life towards a life of soldiering. And he rapidly had an almost meteoric rise through the ranks because of his numerous victories in combat and his brilliant strategies. Now, very few of us here today, honestly... Very few of us here today know people who are like that or are anything like that. I can tell you, for me right now, I've never been on a mobile military campaign for months and months at a time. I have never stood toe-to-toe with an armed man who wanted to shove cold steel in my guts. And I've never looked at someone in the eyes and ordered their execution. But King David had... He was a soldier. He was a leader. He was a man among men. So what's the first thing that he's going to write? With all that in the background, what's the first thing that's in his head as he goes to write these lyrics? Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. 
Is that what you expected? You should have. Because you see, what do you call a person who doesn't need help in life? What do you call someone who is completely and utterly self-sufficient? They don't need people. They don't need religion. And if they have a goal, they will achieve it. Well, you call those people imaginary because they don't exist. You see, some, in my work outside of the church, I often hear people tell me things like, oh, well, religion, it's really just a crutch. It's really just something you, do, you believe in to get you through the tough times in life. You don't actually believe it. It's wishful thinking. I hear others say, well, religion is just the drug, man. It's the drug of the masses. People are into it because it helps them get through life. But honestly, is anyone honestly a true believer in the myth of the fully self-sufficient person? Because I have never met anyone in my whole life who is truly self-sufficient. Everyone needs a refuge when life gets tough. Everyone goes to something or someone as a shelter that they lean on. Everyone. You name the person. Everyone's got something. Everyone. And if possible, I would love for these true believers in the truly self-sufficient person to come down and have dinner with King David one day. After the initial pleasantries, as they sit down and talk with one another and introduce, I would love to hear when the conversation you know, gets a little deeper, after maybe the half an hour mark or so, I'd love to see it get a little deeper and for them to share their belief system. And for King David to sort of pause as he's eating his food and look him in the eye and say, are you serious? Do you seriously believe that I could run at Goliath if I didn't think I had a God behind me? Do you seriously think I could have stared down a mutiny among my own men if I hadn't have strengthened myself with divine power? Do you think I could do that? And I can imagine King David very quickly moving from this sort of defense to offense move and saying, yeah, but what about you? What do you personally rely on when the chips are down and when life is hard? And is it bigger than God? That'll be a long silence, I reckon, after that particular statement. Because you see, David's not dumb. He's a king. He could have had anything he wanted in life to get him through tough times. He could have had as many women as he wanted. He could have all the drink that he wanted. He could have all the friends and all the popularity because everyone wants to be friends with the king. He could have easily relied on escapism or workaholism like so many other kings around him. And just like in our day, they use it as their crutch when things get hard and life is difficult. Escapism or workaholism. And yet none of these things in all of human history are as trustworthy or as strong or as close as God. So David closes his eyes, thinks about it for a bit and writes these words. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. Let me, and the question for you today I ask is, well, could you write those words? 2023, 1st of October? Can you write those words? Can you say that prayer is your first thought and not your last resort? There are some of us here today, and, and you know who you are. Are you still running to workaholism when you're threatened or stressed? 
And for others of us here, are you still using escapism when things get really hard in your life? And you clock up countless hours in your gaming account, or you endlessly scroll through your mobile phone. You are constantly engaging in social events, friends, and some sort of activity, anything to anesthetize the nagging fears and worries in your life. Now, a clear sign that you're falling into workaholism or escapism is that you can't have long periods of time in silence or stillness. You just can't. You can't do long periods of time in silence or stillness because it just gets too much. These emotions begin to bubble up and these intrusive, non-stop thoughts keep coming in and you can't handle it. So you get up and you go, you have to do something. You work or you escape. And if that's you, and I think we all feel the tug one way or the other in these extremes, if that's you, you've got to know that you were created and designed for a relationship with God. That's why workaholism and escapism don't work on our deepest levels. You need to go to the one where true shelter and true strength is found. And it's not just words to God. It's not you just saying, God, help. Life is hard. It's active leaning. An active leaning or reminding yourself of his precious promises in your life. That if you follow him, he will never leave you and forsake you, he promises. That he promises to work everything out in your life together for good for those who love him. That's the sort of promises you need to be leaning on and trusting in. The promises that... You are his workmanship in the 21st century, that God's still working, that he's working on you. And he has an ultimately good plan for your life and that he will complete what he started. There's some truths you need. There's some truths you need to load up, stick in your backpack, get in your mind and walk around with them. Because life's tough. And we need those truths. And you need to rest in there. Because if you rest on anything else... You're going to get some very unpleasant surprises very soon. And it only takes three minutes of talking to people in this room at a deep level to hear what some of those unpleasant surprises are. And dare I say, inside this room and outside this room. Because anything other than God, escapism or workaholism, ultimately promises you 10 bucks but charges you 15. That's how it works. Some of the ways I've found helpful to actually remind myself of these truths is... For me, when I have many things trying to tempt me in one way or the other, workaholism, escapism, I find it's helpful to put on worship music in the car or at home, to read the Bible regularly, to remind myself of truths because there are so many voices yelling at me. I try to remind myself of things very specifically, like, for example, God, in this area of my life, life is really hard, but I trust that promise where you said you'll never leave me and forsake me. God, I've got issues with health. God, I promise you said you're not finished with me yet. And there's a promise about heaven that I'm looking forward to right now. When I've got emotional issues or major temptations pushing me and pushing me and it's not given up and it's not given up, I, promise, uh, I remind myself of these promises. God, you have said that no temptation has come at me except that which is common. And you are faithful and you will not allow this temptation to totally overwhelm me, but you'll provide a way out. You'll provide an escape. Thank you for that truth in your word. 
It's completely customizable. It's the Swiss Army knife for the modern world. That's how God's promises work. And you need to learn how to utilize them in your unique situations. David had learned how to utilize it. Have you yet? Do you have more room to grow in that? I know I do. Moving from there, I want you to follow in David's footsteps and not just realize that God can be your shelter, but David also wants you to know that he can be the source of your joy. He says in the second verse up here, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. David has a big perspective. He realizes that God isn't just a shelter in life. God's the source of his joy. Every good thing that David has ever experienced actually comes from the hand of God. And that's the same today. God is generous. Have you ever had a good day at work? Well, thank God for that. You ever had a really good party, a good time with friends? You can thank God for that. And you look at anything, events around you, the mobile phone in your pocket, whatever is good, whatever good memories you have stored up in here from a lifetime, everything comes from God. In fact, you can't even think of one thing, one good thing that you've ever experienced that wasn't from God in one form or another. Because He's a good God and He's generous. That's the second part of the verse. Apart from you, I have no good thing. But David just doesn't go there. Notice the first part of the verse. You are my Lord. This means that David recognizes that everything good in his life is from God. But God's God. So he treats God like God and has God as the ultimate priority in his life. And everything else filters down. And there is something very good and right and ordered and structured about this. Because just like a train on the train tracks needs to stay on the tracks, just like a good song has to follow the notes on the page, so too the good life needs to follow the design that the design has given it. It makes sense. And we see the chaos around us when people give the proverbial finger to God and go their own way. We see the chaos. I don't need to make some big reasoned multi-point argument about why you should trust God and not the things out there because I think you've seen it yourself. I think you've experienced it yourself. So is David. And that's why he orders his life rightly and thanks God for all the good things. As we push on from that, David gets real specific. He says, I say to the holy ones in the land... They are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. But those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Now, libations, that word there, libations of blood just means like blood offerings. Now, I haven't seen an animal sacrifice with my own eyes. I went in an area in Mexico once where there was current human sacrifice. That's the closest I've ever got. It's a wild area. Um, But it doesn't take long for you to find out that animal sacrifice, and as I've just mentioned, even human sacrifice, still goes on today. It's a perennial issue. And if you want to get something very disturbing and macabre, you may remember this actually, uh, maybe from 2014, 
you want to have a look at the example of the infamous Gadimai festival in Nepal. Now, in Nepal, they celebrate Gadimai, who is a form of the goddess Kali. Now, get this. Nine years ago, 200,000 animals. Let me say that again. 200,000 animals were sacrificed at the Gadimai festival. Try to get your head around that. I can imagine maybe one animal, if I, if I try. Two, three, four, five. Yeah, I think I can. 200,000. It's beyond me. 200,000. Gadimai happened again in 2019. And guess what? It's happening in 2024 in Nepal. Here are some quotes from previous attendees and organizers. This is a divine power center. Mangal Chadhari, the head priest of the Gadimai temple, said by phone, when people wish for a son, a job, good health, or anything else to come true, they make an offering of an animal to the Gadimai goddess. He expects more than 5 million people to attend the festival. You ever been to a festival with 5 million people? 200,000 animals? This is just one festival going on in the world right now. Subhu Sahani, who's 25, travelled with his family for a day from India with a goat offering. And he said he's happy to be here. The goddess listened to me. We didn't have any children. But my wife has now given birth to a daughter. Sanhani told AFP News Agency. It's like playing Lotto with blood. Because you see, good things do happen after these sacrifices. If good things didn't happen, people wouldn't do them. But the problem here, the key issue, is that God is incredibly generous and people completely ignore His generosity and instead they credit their God with God's generosity in their life. You see, God's so generous, He even gives it to undeserving people like you, like me, like people who sacrifice animals. That doesn't stop him being generous. It doesn't stop him at all. He's still generous. The question is, will you give him the credit that he deserves? Or will you pin it on the idol that you literally made with your hands and give all the credit to that thing? David had seen that. And I can imagine him seeing all this and saying, ah, I see the suffering these guys have as they slave after their false god. I'm not pouring out such offerings. I'm not even going to have the name Gadamai on my lips, so to speak. But what about us here in the West? Now, our idolatry may not be as obvious as shrines and machetes, but we do have these. Here's two I found earlier. Got a bank card here. Got a watch. What do you reckon? They, I would say that they are very effective at indicating our idols. And we sacrifice, oh, how we sacrifice here in the West. Let me ask you, do you think the gods of Australia are any less lethal than Gadamai? Do you think they are any less effective at hollowing you out? Well, what do I mean? 
Well, whether you're in the West or the East, every single human being wants to be happy. We all pursue happiness. The Gadamai attendee pursues happiness. And they truly believe that by appeasing their goddess, they will get security, hope, children, happiness. And they will do something significant in the cosmos with their life. All are vital ingredients for a happy life. You need to feel like a success, a secure, you need to feel like you're secure. You need to feel like you can get significance and do something meaningful. You need to feel fulfilled. And for the Gadamai attendee, that's Gadamai. However, in the West, we pursue happiness with equal fervor. I would argue equally passionately, though with less obvious blood. And just like if we followed the open idolater to his temple, if you follow our banker's account and our watches, you will find our Western gods. Just follow. Now, these Western gods are anything, anything or anyone that you personally are trusting more today more than God, for your ultimate happiness. Because we trust these things more than God, or people more than God, we will devote ourselves to these things or people. And we will be willing to sin in order to get or to keep that thing or person. Let me give you an example. Let's, let's bring it down out of the stratosphere and bring it down right here. Um, I work in state high schools, and one of the things I see, I know, I know it's a stereotype, but it fits very well, and I think everyone here has seen this too. Um, often it's teenage girls. It can be boys, but often it's particular girls. They're in my office constantly. Why? Well, they've either got a boyfriend or the boyfriend broke up with them. Now, what happens is that for them, they are constantly chasing a partner, someone to be with, constantly. And their life is like some sort of insane emotional roller coaster. Because they're constantly chasing, constantly chasing. You know the type of girl I'm talking about. They're constantly chasing. And then when they have a boyfriend, finally, they're ecstatic. Absolutely ecstatic. That's all they ever talk about, all they ever do, is talk about them, hang out with them, etc., etc. And when they're not with one, they are totally, totally broken. And looking around, looking around, looking around to see if they can get a boyfriend. It's not just girls. I see some guys doing this, but it's mostly girls. Why? Because deep down, and it comes up every time I have a discussion with them, deep down, they believe that having a boyfriend is the key to happiness. Or being loved by someone else is the key to happiness. And they think the best way to get that is through the bloke in their class or the bloke a few years older than them. You've seen it. I've seen it. Maybe that was you in high school. But at the end of the day, their devotion is real. Very real. And matches any religious fanatic. More than that, let's, let's skip. What about young adults? I see this in young adults who go to uni quite often. Is that maybe they've been to church. Maybe they call themselves a Christian. They go off to uni. They have all the challenges that a young adult faces in uni. And with work and jobs and potential romantic partners. And all these challenges press in on them. And what they do is, to, to, to go to their refuge to find happiness, their happiness is if they can just get that degree. If they can just get that apprenticeship done. If they can just get it, then they can be happy. 
And what happens? Well, the things of God, being with God's people, loving Him, being close, coming to church, hanging out with His people, obeying and following Him, all those things fall by the wayside. God's not number one, He's number two, three, four, five, somewhere in there. And if exams are over, whew, I can finally go back to church. Um, if I was finally able to secure that thing I wanted to secure, whew, now I can finally hang out with my Christian friends. Haven't read the Bible for ages. We've all been there, right? It's almost this temporary insanity. But for some young adults, it's not temporary insanity. It continues. And they very slowly, and they don't, they don't even do it consciously, they very slowly move away from God, almost like a coal that's been taken out of the fire. And their love for God finally dies out. Because something else, some other idol, has very subtly replaced the God of the universe. Or, push it further, um, maybe one last example. Um, as a parent, um, I've, seen, I've been in youth ministry now for close to 20 years. Um, started when I was a youth. And one thing that I often saw was parents who had kids who were really gifted or skilled and they would involve them in extracurricular activities. And that's fine. But then eventually it became every Sunday, every Friday, and the whole family revolved around these gifted kids, right? And if you ask the family, hey, what's going on? We haven't seen you for ages, you know, um, at small group or community um, or church, wherever. They're like, oh, no, we're still Christian. Like, <laughs> we're still Christians, you know. But things are crazy right now, and we're just in the middle of this big sporting season. It's just, uh, it's going to be over soon. But it never is, is it? First season, second season, third season. Whole chunks of life where God isn't center anymore. And again, if you ask them, you, like if, if you ask them, are you guys Christian? If a stranger asks them that, they'll say, yeah, of course. But the idea is that if my child is a success, if my child can really get up there, then we'll be happy. Then we can be happy. And that is more important than pursuing God right now. That's Western gods right there for you, folks. And I've only named four. It's, it's almost infinite. Um, Calvin said that the human heart's like an idol factory. It pumps out these idols. And I've got idols. You've got idols that whisper to you. We all do. What's yours? Let me ask, what's yours? Is it common like this? Or is it rather uncommon? Whatever it is, you've got to watch out. You've got to watch out. Because eventually, uh, well, actually, put it this way, in the West, I think we have more to worry about than the Gadamai Festival. I would argue that our idols are more deadly. Why? Well, if you, do, you sacrifice your goat to Gadamai, and then the goat dies, you don't get that thing you wanted, you're down one goat, well, you can put it down to an arbitrary, moody god, right? But here in the West... If your idol fails you, if that one you loved deeply with all your heart rejects you, if you don't get that uni degree or you fail your apprenticeship, or if those awesome family moments, that happy family picture you have in your mind doesn't come about and your family begins to fracture, well, we've got no one to blame but ourselves. No one to blame. There's no arbitrary moody God who wrecked it for us. It's on us. That's what happens with non-religious gods. 
That's what happens when you worship these things or follow them. And it gives us a unique level of fragility. And when we make good things into God things, bad things happen. I hope I'm putting a pretty clear case here. It's self-inflicted stupidity and fragility. And we're all vulnerable to it. And you've got to watch out for this. At the end of the day, though, nothing is wrong with those things. Nothing is wrong with those good God things. But when you make a good thing a God thing, that's where the danger is. David knew this. And let's push on here because I want to show you this last part. And I think this is one of the most exciting parts in the whole of the psalm. David moves on from that and he dedicates far more time to talking about how good God is, how better God is than any idol. He says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I'll keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. You can see how he's pressing the accelerator here, can't you? He's just going for it. He keeps going and he expands to these last few verses. Therefore, because of everything that I've said so far, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. It's a flood of truth from his pen. It's a flood. But does he go too far here in what he said? Look closer. Verse 10. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You reckon David really believed that he was invulnerable? That he wouldn't die? Well, I think it's unlikely, considering a lot of the other Psalms, as him crying out to God to protect him from death. Crying out for protection against the many things that's coming his way. David knew he was mortal. Well, what's he saying here in verse 10? I'll tell you right up. No one really knew for a very long time. For centuries, psalm-singing Jews were totally confused when they sang that. Because David died. He has a tomb, or had a tomb in Jerusalem. Everyone knew it. What does this mean? Well, you see, the key to unlocking this mystery about this holy one who would never see decay appeared centuries later. And you begin to realize that David wasn't just a warrior. He was a prophet. Centuries later, in the first century AD, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is speaking to a large group of people, much larger than this one here today. They had come together after the Holy Spirit had powerfully hit the city of Jerusalem. And you can read this address in Acts 2, verses 22 to 33. Peter explains this psalm, finally. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man had been handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, 
I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. And you fill me with joy in your presence. The Holy One who would never see decay. That's a prophecy. And as Peter pointed out, that's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And as many of us here know today, Jesus' resurrection opens up the way to life. He opens up the way to death after life. Jesus died and paid for our sins. We sang it just earlier. Jesus died and paid for our sins in our place so that anyone can be forgiven of their sin, justice is served, and you can have reconciliation with God. And this naturally leads to what David says on that last little verse. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in his presence. Your joy and happiness starts now, in this life, with the relationship with God. David knew that his relationship with God would not be severed at death. Because he said, right at the end, You made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. David knew that death is just a door. He knew that his obituary was just a door to further relationship with God, with eternal pleasures at God's right hand. Because God's a God of pleasure. You fill me with joy in your presence. In God's presence, there is joy. And David knew where he was going. Why is heaven so good? Because God's there. And what David knew on that dusty day as he was writing that psalm, he now knows in full. And both yours and David's journey starts here on earth and can start here on earth. And it can go on forever with an infinitely satisfying God. That's what he promises. And that's what he can do. So for now, I think there's a very real challenge that lays behind all of us. The challenge is this. When you leave here, you will have many voices. Many voices. Speaking to you, calling you, wanting you to listen. You'll also have what you know from Scripture from what God has said as well. And you see, when it comes to God, His power is here today. His love is here today. And His presence is here now. The question is, what will you do with it? Or, if we want to flip this on a different way, the satanic lies that undermine much of the West's idolatry, very real. You know these lies. And the demons behind these carefully constructed lies, well, their power is here now. Their presence is here now. And they, like God, are stepping towards you today. What will you do? What will you do? There is no neutral here. There is no sitting on the fence. I'm not sure. 
you will lean on someone or something. Who are you leaning on? Are they trustworthy? Are they as good as God? Um, Particularly, I know there's some teenagers here who for the last few months, Satan has been very, very busy in your lives. Very busy. He knows you are valuable to the kingdom of God. He sees your potential that's growing day by day. And he's coming at you. He's whispering at you. He's whispering at you promises of fulfillment, of happiness and trust. But not with that Jesus stuff that you grew up with. Young adults here are hearing the same thing. And I know you're just a teenager, and I know you're just a teenager or just a young adult. But to be honest, if Satan's really busy, that means you're valuable. That means you're worth his time and effort. And Jesus says that he's died for you as well. So what are you going to do? I wish I could protect you from this stuff. I wish I could protect you to, I don't know, like 40, and like you're a pastor yourself or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, I wish I could do that, but I can't. If you've got Christian parents, I bet you they wish they could protect you, but they can't. You need to stand on your own two feet and make the call yourself. And what you do will impact the generations after you, just like what your parents have done have affected the generations after them. What will you do? And I know I've been talking to teenagers and young adults, but every person here has a circle of influence. Every person here powerfully impacts people. Every single one of us here need to make a decision. So, while that seems like a lot, I want to leave you with an opportunity to respond. The best way to respond in moments like these, or to crossroads like this, is to just have a very simple, open, honest, and authentic conversation with God. Where you are, where you're at. Maybe you've been putting this off for months. But today's the day. Today's the day. I'm going to pray and I'm going to leave it open for about a minute or two. And I'm going to encourage you to have your conversation with God. To speak to Him yourself. You don't have to do it out loud. Just you and Him. He can take it. He knows what you're thinking anyway. He can take whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling. If you've got some strong words for God, share it. If you've got some doubts, share it. If you've got something good going on in your life right now, and this barely even seems relevant, everything you've heard today, because God's been so good and so awesome, share it. The point is, share it with God. And then make a conscious decision towards Him. Because only He's strong enough and good enough to hold the weight of the 21st century and the weight of being human. I'm going to pray. Jesus, I thank you that what David knew all those years ago, in part, he now knows in full. I thank you that you've given us, um, not the secret, the open public um, secret of what a joy-filled life can look like. I thank you that you share this news everywhere because you don't want anyone to perish and you came that we can have life and life to the full. Lord God, um, you know the hearts of every single person here today. There are a number of people who aren't Christians here, a lot of people who are. You know everyone's heart. And Lord Jesus, I just pray in the next minute that you will speak to every single person here, that every single person here will be honest with you, and that it'll be the start or the continuation 
of a beautiful, powerful, strong thing that impacts and ripples into eternity. Some people have to make some serious decisions today. And I thank you that you are here and you match us at exactly where we're at. So Lord Jesus, may many people today choose to walk those crossroads um, towards you, to lean on you. And now, Lord, we just give this time to you to speak to you with what we know we need to talk to you about. Amen. Wherever you're at, let me encourage you. A truly meaningful relationship has more than just one conversation in it. So keep up the conversation with God as, as He walks with you. And if you're not comfortable yet walking with God, just keep talking. He has a way of making Himself known.